In eternity past, God was there. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit enjoying a glorious intimacy. The God who was there put a plan in motion. This plan that would include a creation and the prized jewel of that creation would be humans made in the very image of God. But this plan would include not just creation, but also redemption. And it would all be for a display of the glory of God. And at the center of the plan of God, he would make sons and daughters who would enjoy freedom in the presence of God. Not being held back, not being entangled by any other love or any other idol, but simply free to run, to enjoy the very presence of God, to just revel in Him and fulfill our purpose as image bearers. God made us for freedom. And that is the whole theme of the book of Galatians that we've been studying for the last several weeks, that we are free at last. Let me read from chapter 5, verse 1, as we continue in our series. Galatians 5, we'll read just the first verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Father's plan is your freedom. The Son died and was resurrected again for your freedom. The Spirit has been sent into the world and indwells us and sanctifies us for our freedom. Everything about the purpose of God and who we are can be wrapped up in this one word, freedom. As we read earlier in the gathering from Luke chapter 4, Jesus described that his very mission was to set captives free. This is why he came. And this is a message that as a faith family, we need to understand. And yet, if you've ever noticed, sometimes you can go to worship gathering and you can hear the word and, and it just grips you. And you leave the room and you're changed and you have this resolve and your life is no longer the same. And yet sometimes we go to worship gathering and we hear a sermon and we say, oh, okay. And then we go to lunch. And then we just go about our lives as though nothing happened. And, and the difference between listening to a sermon and being either critical or unchanged and the difference with hearing the word and being transformed, the only difference is the grace of God. We are just desperate for God's grace through his spirit to come down on us so that when we look at Galatians 5 and understand that God has made us for freedom, that it would sink deep and that we would not go back to a yoke of slavery. So let's just take a moment and let's just pray. Let's just, let's just be in God's presence together and let's, let's just pray and ask God to do what only he can do. 
Jesus, you told us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You would give us rest. You said to take your yoke and to learn from you. For you are gentle and you are lowly in spirit. And that you will give us rest for our souls. He said, come to you, for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And yet we can so easily go back to this yoke of slavery. Instead of your yoke that is easy and light and your freedom, we want to learn from you, Jesus. We do not want to leave this place the same. We want to see your glory. Taste your freedom. For this is our purpose. Who just ask for your spirit to come down and that your grace would be so heavy upon us, that we would not leave this place the same. We praise you, Jesus, for only you are worthy of it, for your kingdom, for your power, for your glory. Amen. We have been made for this purpose of freedom. You see in Galatians 5, chapter 1, it says, For freedom you have been set free. In the original language, the noun, so the subject of this sentence is freedom. And then the verb, so the action in the sentence is freedom. Now, it would really kind of weird in English. It would say, for freedom Jesus has done freedom, like it doesn't work in English, and so it says set free. But in the original, it's the same word, freedom, freedom, for freedom, by freedom. And so what is being communicated in this verse is from beginning to end. So what God is doing, the goal is freedom, and the means to get there, the action is freedom. And so everything about the gospel is freedom. That is the purpose, that is the point, is that we would experience Freedom, and we have seen that throughout the whole book. And so just to give you a very quick recap in chapter 1, it says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So he has come to deliver us from this evil age. In chapter 2, it says that we have freedom in Christ. And then in chapter 3, it says that we were held captive under the law in prison, but now in Christ you are all sons and daughters through faith. And then chapter 4, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the whole book, we get to chapter 5, it's all about being set 
free in chapter 5, verse 1, is basically a summary of the whole book. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, fight for it. Stand firm. This is like a military description. He's saying, don't give in. Don't surrender. Fight back. Walk in the Spirit and, and wield the sword of the Spirit. And don't give in to, again, that yoke of slavery. Because we have this yoke that Jesus offers us that is light and that is easy and that's not a burden and does not enslave. He says, do not go back again. That's a key word in verse 1. He says, don't go back again to a yoke of slavery. Remember, Galatia was a region that is in modern-day Turkey. So it's Asia Minor, so it was known in the ancient world. It was part of the Greek you know, Roman Empire, they were Greek-speaking, and so they worshipped, you know, before they came to faith in Jesus, they, they worshipped the traditional Greek pagan gods, and they went into these temples, and they were literally enslaved to this paganism. And now they're believers, and now they're part of a church, and so they have come to faith, and Paul's writing to them as brothers and sisters, and he's telling them, don't go back again to slavery. Now, the problem in Galatia was not going back to paganism and Greek gods. No. The problem of them is that they were going back to this this hyper-legalistic, biblical religion. And it's just as subtle and just as deadly as their previous paganism. Where Paul is saying, don't go back to a yoke of slavery. And the going back now isn't to paganism. It's to a, again, a biblical legalism. A performance-based biblical religion. He's calling that going back to slavery. He says a yoke, a, a burden of slavery, and so a immoral, desiring a license to sin, atheistic, there is no God, that kind of lifestyle is slavery. And yet we also see that there can be a yoke of religious slavery that is just as much being enslaved. And the reason why is both you're trying to find salvation on your own terms, in your own ability. So that person who is living an openly immoral lifestyle because there is no God, they're trying to find hope and joy and purpose and meaning and salvation in their immorality. And that person who is looking to being a religious Pharisee and looks down on others who aren't as holy as them, they are just as guilty, and they're trying to find salvation on their own through their moral efforts. And Paul calls that going back to slavery. Because he's telling them, if you go to this legalistic biblical religion, what you're doing is, is you're going back to fear. You're going back to not knowing if you're ever doing enough. Are you good enough? Are you obeying enough? You're going to live with fear again. You're going to live with guilt again. You're going to live with pride, thinking that you're better than other 
people and looking at your moral accomplishments or your church service or your theological learning. And it's going to give you a big head and you're going to be proud and you're going to look down on people. And he's saying this religious slavery is deadly. Don't go back. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the next several verses, verses 2 through 15, elaborate on that key verse of how our purpose is freedom in Christ. And the two sections, first is don't lose your freedom. He describes to the Galatian believers on how they should not lose or give up their freedom. So verse 1 says, stand firm. Now, these are believers, and so they already have freedom. But there's a reality in which we can lose our experience of that freedom. Kind of like how you might say that we have union with Christ, and you cannot lose that union with Jesus, but you can have your communion affected and his presence clouded. This is described oftentimes as grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit. It's the same essence here of where we're able to, yes, be saved and yes, be free in the ultimate sense. And yet our experience, if we are giving in to the idols of this world, is we will not live with the freedom. We will not taste the freedom that God wants us to have in him. And so verses 2 through 12 are calling us to not lose our freedom, but rather to remember our freedom, to walk in our freedom, to rejoice in our freedom, and to live our lives in line with the gospel and in line with the freedom that we have in Christ. Verses 2 through 12. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through this spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is some serious language. He's mad. Like, if you can just imagine, Paul is so blistering angry, and this is so serious. He is saying in verse 12, as we finish that, um, you who want to circumcise, don't just stop with the tip. Do the whole thing. Just chop it all off emasculate. Like he is saying, fine, just go for it if you think that is going to bring you salvation or being closer to God. Verse 2, let's work through this text. 
he says that Christ is not yours if you try to earn it with your resources. He says Christ will be of no advantage, of no benefit to you. So either Jesus does everything for you or nothing for you. There's nothing in between. If you could earn anything from God through your own moral efforts, then that would mean God were in debt to you because you earned something from him just like an employee earns wages from the owner and the owner is then entitled, legally bound, to pay the employee what he's earned. It's not a gift. It's a transaction. And so if you could earn anything from God, then God would be in debt to you. He would owe you salvation because you purchased it through your own ability, through your own moral or religious efforts. But you see, salvation at its essence is recognizing something. Recognizing that you're broke, recognizing that you're bankrupt, that your credit cards are all maxed out, bank account says zero, there is no money coming in, you have no resources, no means, you are spiritually bankrupt, and you with desperation cry out, to Jesus and say, will you please save me? I have no other recourse. I have nowhere else to turn. I have no other religion that can save me. There's no other worldview that can satisfy. I have nowhere else to go, Jesus. You have the, the words of life, and you are the life and the way and the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so salvation recognizes that you are morally, spiritually busted. And you have nowhere else to turn except cry out to Jesus and his mercy and cast yourself upon the mercy of a holy God. We add nothing. We earn nothing. You know what slavery is? Slavery is trying to earn from God. You know what salvation is? Receiving. There's a world of difference. Verses 2 through 4 tell us that we don't have to keep the whole law in order to be saved. Looking to, in this context, circumcision, but looking to any religious ritual or any religious involvement or attendance, anything with our old moral or religious efforts means that the work of Jesus would be no benefit to you. So if you're trying to earn salvation in your own strength, then that means that there's no benefit from Jesus. It says you're obligated to keep the whole law. So Paul is saying, listen, there's two ways to go. You can either try to go your own way in your own power with your own religion and your own morals and if that's the case, you have to keep the whole law and be holy and keep the perfect standard but if you can't do that, and obviously none of us can, the only way to be saved is by grace. It's simply depending upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
Otherwise, we're obligated, it says, to keep the whole law. Because what you're basically saying is, I don't need you, Jesus. I got this. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I go to church like three times a year. I'm doing you all these favors, Jesus. I even put a few bucks in the offering plate whenever it comes around. I show up like I'm this good person. I don't need to be saved. I've, I'm good. We're all, we're, I'm okay. You're okay. That kind of thinking which permeates our world, especially in our culture, says that you are severed from Christ. That you, you have, it says, fallen from grace that you don't want the grace of Jesus. Now, that does not refer to a believer that loses their salvation. That's referring to someone who does not want the grace of God. They're trying to earn their salvation in their own way. They are severed from Christ, and they're not going to receive grace because they don't want it. They're rejecting it. They're not saved. It's very easy for us that are part of a church plant, and let's just be honest, there's kind of like a rawness to being with the young church under a year old, meeting in a school with setup and, you know, just, just the reality of it. And, and those of us that are, that are members and have been here now approaching one year, it's awesome, so it'll be one year next month. And so looking forward to one year anniversary weekend, it's going to be awesome. But it's very easy for those of us that, that are part of a young and growing church is that, that we can kind of get a big head. It's the easy thing to do, and it's easy for us to think, man, look at what we've accomplished for God. And we would never, I mean, I don't think so, none of us would ever actually say, I'm trying to earn salvation. We wouldn't say that. But there's, there's very subtle ways that we can still adopt the thinking that Galatians 5 is talking about. We can approach God in a very subtle way where we are trying to bribe God for blessings. We're trying to extort from God or to manipulate God with our good works. And so we'll say things like, God, look at me. I serve you. I even came on spring forward morning when it was still dark outside and got my kids up. When it was like 6.30, but it was really 7.30, and it, was, and it was still dark, and it was cold. And I came, and I did set up. God, look, I'm, I'm, I'm such a good person. God, look at me. I tithe, and I serve, and, and I, I, I want to be a missionary for you. And God, I, I do all of these things, and I'm, I'm a committed believer. And so then we begin to make a list of all of our religious and moral and church accomplishments. And we hold, we hold it up and say, God, look at all that I do for you. Why haven't you healed me? Why haven't you given me that better job? Why haven't you given me a wife or a husband or maybe a better wife or a better husband? Or maybe you're thinking, God, why don't I have better parents? 
I'm a good kid. I deserve better. I don't know what you think. We can all have things that we wish we had, and we can get angry and shake our fist to God and say, why aren't you giving me what I want? I do so much for you. Can you just pay me back a little? And, and we approach serving God as a way to bribe him and think that now he's in debt to us and God owes us. That mentality is exactly what Paul is talking about here. You are severed from Christ. You're not going to experience his presence. That is still slavery to think that we can bribe God with our good efforts. Verse 5 is the assurance that we have that we who trust Jesus will not fall away from grace because it says that through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We have this assurance. And so Paul, writing to believers, knows that they are assured. They have the Holy Spirit. And so they have this, this assurance that their salvation does not depend on them, but on the work of Jesus. Verse 6 is beautiful. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now remember, circumcision represents a religious effort, a, a religious ritual to earn salvation. And uncircumcision was the pagans, those that were lost. So the non-religious, the unchurched. So what he's saying here by juxtaposing the two that neither counts for anything, he's saying your moral efforts or your moral failures, either one changes nothing. And so if you are having a really great day, a really great week, or an amazing season where you're having a quiet time every single day, you're in prayer every single day, you have not looked at anything bad on the internet, you just feel like, oh, I'm such a good Christian. Ever feel that way? Like, no. But for argument's sake, let's suppose that you had a season or, or a day where you felt like, oh, I'm just killing it spiritually. I'm doing so good. It says that counts for nothing. That doesn't get you any extra love from God. It doesn't get you any extra anything from God. He says this religious activity doesn't actually improve your standing with God. But then it says uncircumcision, so this represents failure. This represents not being religious. And so what happens if you have a really rough season? What if you have a season marked by failure or depression or conflict with your spouse or laziness serving your church or not tithing or whatever it is? Like, you're just you're struggling. That counts for nothing. Your moral achievements and your failures do exactly nothing to change how God loves you. You are saved by the mercy of God. You are sustained by his spirit. And when you fall, 
you can know that your father is just leaning over and saying, it's okay. And he picks you up. He's holding you, saying, it's okay. I got you. I'm with you. You can do better because I'm with you. Now I'm at work in your heart. Don't lose hope. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So we are not defined by our ups or our downs spiritually. We are defined by who we are in Christ. And it says that we have this hope of righteousness, hope of one day being completely righteous in the presence of God. We have hope that does not depend on us. It depends on Jesus and his work on the cross. So we have a living hope. And verse 10 describes this confidence Paul has. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He's like, I know you're believers. I know you won't fall from grace. I know God's going to sustain you. I have confidence that you'll come out of this and that you will see the truth, the true gospel, and see your purpose is your freedom. He's confident. And then verses 7 through 12 that we just read, he's expressing his absolute frustration with his false teachers that are leading people astray down a yoke of religious slavery and performance-based religion. He says, you were running well. What happened? You lost sight. And then he says, a little leaven, just a little bit of legalism will infect the whole church. So he says, stand firm. And apparently, in verse 11, there were accusations that even Paul was preaching about circumcision being required for salvation. And Paul says, man, that's just fake news. He's on his Twitter, and he's putting out all kinds of tweets saying, don't listen to those fake news media. It's not true. He's saying, no. I do not preach that. I preach the gospel. He wants them to know very clearly that he's preaching only the gospel. And then verse 12 we talked about earlier, he wants them to castrate themselves because of the evil that they are committing in the church. Paul didn't pull any punches. Like, you think I'm intense? Like, Paul is a whole different level of spirit-inspired intensity. Now, I want to share one more potential way that we can lose our freedom. This whole section is on not losing your freedom, is, is what I'll call unhealthy gratitude. And this is a believer, I'm sure here in the room, some of you, because I've, I've been there as well, where you know God loves you and you know Jesus died for you and you know how much he did for you, and so you are genuinely grateful you are so thankful for the salvation God has given to you. And so you adopt this unhealthy gratitude mentality where you feel like, God, after all you've done for me, I just want to pay you back. I just want to serve you. So I'm going to serve as much as possible and give my life away as a way to just repay you. And we can suddenly fall into being a debtor as we're in debt to God. In some ways we are, but God wants us to relate to him as sons and daughters who are adopted. He wants us to relate to him with love 
not as though grace is some sort of a loan and you're paying it off with monthly installments and you're you're paying God back for what he did for you. That is also slavery. And so if you are serving out of gratitude in this unhealthy way where you're in a subtle way trying to pay God back, that's still being enslaved to a performance religion that we just call gratitude. We are free to love God, to enjoy him, to walk in his spirit, to hear his voice, and his spirit will lead us in how we serve. And we ought to give our lives away, but we ought to do it within a healthy gratitude, not a paying God back way out of just sheer love and enjoyment. So he says, your purpose is freedom. So he says right here, don't lose it. Don't lose your freedom. Number two, don't abuse your freedom. Don't abuse it. This is the last few verses, verses 13 through 15. For we who were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you were not consumed by one another. So he's saying basically if someone says, yay, Jesus paid it all. I don't have to put the law anymore. I'm free from the law. And so I can go live however I want, even if that's immoral, because I am free from the law. If you want a big word, that's called antinomian. Nomos is Greek for law. So anti-law, no law. So this is not describing an antinomian view of no law. That's not what this is describing. If we have this mentality that because of Jesus' work on the cross, I can now go do this sin knowingly, willfully, saying, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness after I do it. This kind of mentality, what he's saying to not abuse our freedom When we think that way, it shows that we see so little value in the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see so little glory, so little value in that, that you don't care that much about that, where you care more about your lifestyle that is against the gospel, and so that is evidence that you're not free. That mentality, this abusing our freedom is evidence that that you still have idols that have enslaved you and you still need more of God's freedom. So God's purpose for us is freedom. We're We're called to not lose it and to not abuse it. Now as you wrap up, let me give you a couple of thoughts and we're almost done. What's the result? What happens When we're walking in the Spirit, what happens when we know our freedom, we're walking in that freedom, and we're not losing it or abusing it? You know what happens? Verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you know, circumcision, uncircumcision counts for anything. He says, but only faith working through love. So he mentions faith working through love. Verse 13. But through love serve one another. And then verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So what is the result of our freedom? Love. We love others sacrificially. Freedom in God and joy in God doesn't hinder love for others. Joy and freedom in God overflows in love for others. That's what it looks like to experience God's freedom is we love other people sacrificially. So the world says, seek love to be happy, right? That's what it says. Seek love to be happy. But that's not true. The Bible says, seek God to be happy. He is your purpose. He is your joy. And so when we are finding our joy in Jesus, we will love. We will love others out of the overflow. So freedom in Christ results in meeting the needs of other people. So if you're here today and you're struggling with loving your wife or loving your husband or your children or a coworker or a sibling or that crazy uncle, if you're struggling to love someone in your church or loving your church herself, if you are struggling with loving others, then the solution is not Try harder to love them. That won't work. Remember, the result of freedom in Christ is love. Therefore, if you are struggling to love, that tells me and that tells you that there's an area in your heart that is still enslaved. It's not free. You're in bondage to something. There is something that is hindering you and not allowing you to overflow in love because it's a barrier. You're enslaved to something that you need the Spirit of God to tear down that stronghold, remove that, have freedom in Christ, and then you will be able to love. And so if you're having a hard time loving, then what you need is, it says, faith working love. You need more faith. You, you need to beg God for a fresh encounter. You need to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus afresh. And then, and then you will love. Love is the overflow of freedom and joy in Christ. We have been set free for freedom. May we be a church that walks in it. And displays it for the glory of God and the joy of Bell County and the nations.